Harbors Magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox. On the web at mainboats.com. On the Wing, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., where you will hear the latest releases in folk, rock, world, jazz, and much more. Only on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. I am alone, but adored by a hundred thousand more than I said when you were alive. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for powerboats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com. It's a little bit before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill. Boat Talk is a, uh, a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. And today we're going to be talking with two people who, um, who know that Counting whales can be a fluky business. <laughs> that was a good one. Well, I don't want to spout off too much about that. That was a good one, too. <laughs> Alan's the punny one. I read a, uh, I was going to bring it into, but I didn't, but I can remember it. There was a uh, article in the Ellsworth American about the LL for Holies place down in Sargentville there. Yes. Yep, Mexican it's Mexican place. eatery. LL for Holies stands for LL Beans. You know, it's pretty funny, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, they're doing some winter stuff, but the article included a pun, and, and as the lady says, uh, it's a terrible pun, therefore it's everything a pun should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Some people will say it's the lowest form of humor. I say it's the foundation for everything else. Well, as I say to Alan, sometimes it's good to know you, bud. So anyway, we're doing boat talk again. This uh, has come around, and I uh, just pointed out it's one, 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 one today. That's right. Today is yes, a, a wonderful day. <laughs> uh, it's uh, one eleven eleven. Yeah. So uh, yeah, line all those up and uh, feel good about it. We're well, doing do it again maybe in November. Uh, we're doing boat talk uh, this morning and. Uh, Got all kinds of stuff to talk about. We'll be talking about winter whales, hopefully a little bit about the Gulf of Mexico. We'll have uh, uh, Dr. Sean Todd and Moira Brown on the phone pretty quick here. we got a pile of other stuff to talk about here. From uh, the Hinkley Company's been sold. They're still going good down in Eastport. Uh, there's been a bunch of people sinking lately. There's been uh, three or four commercial boats that have gone down just since Christmas or so. Um, one off of uh, Wood Island down south, off of Biddeford. Uh, one off of Owl's Head just uh, before New Year's Eve. There was a, uh, and those boats were lost, but no uh, loss of life. There's a fellow missing kayaked across uh, Moosehead Lake, across the Kineo in middle of November. They ain't found him yet. Okay, there are extra risks to the water in this time of year. 
there were two kids. Uh, one's 20 years old, and uh, the other one's a stern man's 18. They were in a uh, RP uh, fiberglass boat, uh, way offshore a little bit, out on the Scudic Ridge, the offshore lobster, okay? And the boat's tipping over a little bit, and they look back, and, oh, there's water on the back deck. What they don't understand is the rudder has popped out of its little box, okay, and they're going down. They holler for help, and other boats come running, and they slung that boat between two other boats, and another guy ran for a pump, and they got him all to shore. That's some uh, quick thinking and good action right there. Well, what are those, what's that 20-year-old and that 18-year-old learn? That, uh, <laughs> it's not just a simple thing to, like, say. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Check out your equipment. Bad things happen fast, too. Was the phone ringing? Is that what we were looking at no, there? No, no. Uh, but speaking of the phone, so we are going to be speaking with two people, uh, Sean Todd from Allied Whale and Mo Brown from the New England Aquarium. So while they're on the line, we won't be able to uh, take phone calls, but after they get off, probably about 1030, we certainly will be entertaining any sort of phone call. Here's some uh, boating phone news right here. Uh, been reading some of the... Uh, well, regular sailing magazines because of our, our friends from Union River Boat and the Presto 30 we've been talking about for the yep. last uh, while there. So from Sail Magazine, there's a big ad here for the American, American Sailing Association, ASA. They have an app for your iPhone. And on this app, you can, uh, well, it'll teach you how to tie knots. It'll identify vessel lights at night. Of course, you've got to be in range of a cell tower. Um, Sailing terms and definitions, uh, access to Twitter and uh, Facebook. Uh, you can identify flags and also stream how-to videos if you got yourself in a pickle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you can get a signal. So uh, yeah, who I'll, needs to... I'll, yeah. Those boys had that app with them. They probably wouldn't have been able to take care of the rudder themselves. Yeah, seamanship <laughs> gets easier all the time. Who needs experience, which is what we would like to point out that... Just because it gets easier to go out there and do this kind of stuff, there's no... It's what I was saying about the 18-year-old and the 20-year-old kid that was sinking there off the Scudic Ridge. There's no... Uh, there's nothing you can substitute for experience. Yeah. You yeah. know? And uh, there's another app for uh, Doors Lobster down in Millbridge. They're selling lobsters over the iPhone, too. Good for those boys, you know? And the phone is ringing. Do we ever uh, even give the uh, phone number yet? We're, we're uh, like, say, in about five minutes, we're going to have the phones all blocked here by guess. Okay, well, um, let's, let's wait until 1030, and we'll, we'll give out that phone number. Okay. Um, Nobody there right now? I don't think we have Sean or Mo on the, on the phone yet. Okay. So we got um, several other things to talk about. Well, mention the Hinkley Company for a minute. The Hinkley Company. The Hinkley Company is uh, where Alan and I first met. Our alma mater. Yep. yep. And uh, I don't know about you, man. I went there because I hoped to go sailing and stuff on Hinkley's, but that's not what you end up doing a lot of when you work at the Hinkley <laughs> Company. Not so anyway, the Hinkley Company was just sold to a new investment company and uh, Scott pa Scout Partners LLC. One of the partners, I believe, is a boater who had a Hinkley, and uh, it references the old joke about Abel Marine. And uh, Henry Cooper, Henry Cooper invented hot glue. He had a uh, Whistler 4080 sailed around the world built by Abel Marine, and his son was a, a boat broker, Ted Cooper. And uh, so anyway, he decided in his retirement to buy Abel Marine. And the joke was, how do you make a small fortune building boats? You start with a big fortune, and you buy <laughs> Abel Marine. So anyway, the Hinkley Company is uh, hiring again. They're on a bit of a rebound. They... Uh, had to lay off a lot of people the last uh, couple of years, and uh, they're coming back. They have a couple of new models, too. They have a newly designed 37-foot jet boat, an expansion of the 36. 
by all accounts, they've sold like four dozen or so of those things. They're also coming out with a new 49-foot uh, Teleria powerboat. I don't remember the last time they built the sailboat. I don't think they're active in, in I think they still want to, and I think oh, they yeah. may be going with these new partners, hopefully back into building more sailboats. You know, the fellow that bought it, it's a sailboat guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, the Hinkley Company's hiring again. Things are going good. Um, wasn't as glamorous as fun as I hoped working at the Hinkley Company, Alan. No, not not in, at the at the factory. Um, I, after a while, graduated. I'll say over to Bass Harbor Marine, which was sort of a, a Hinkley Skunk Works. What I did was got myself off the production line and into the service department, where real boats were down at the dock. That's right, what I did. Yeah, but I still didn't get to go sailing too much. Although I got a call the other night um, to uh, delivery for a Hinkley Forty Two. And at the end of the winter, we'll go down, hopefully, to St. John's in the Virgin Island and sail that thing back to Newport, Rhode Island, first thing in the spring. So, yeah. uh, you know, be my winter uh, sailing vacation, getting paid, and sail finally sailing them damn Hinkleys. <laughs> so, anyway, there's that. What else we got here? Uh, the Eastport Port. Uh, we can do this one pretty quick, too. They're going great guns down there. They uh, are... Breaking ground right now. Actually, they're blowing it up with dynamite and stuff. Breaking ground is the word for You'd it. You'd have to this time of year, but they're leveling off Estes Head in the back. Uh, the port has two sides, the front in the town, where's where the pier is, and then there's another pier and storage over by the boat school, Estes Head, and they're leveling off several acres of land there to provide more flat storage. And apparently they uh, shipped 400, uh, 400 uh, metric tons of wood chips last year, when they only thought when they started off, 50 would be a good year. Mm. That's plus the pregnant cows we talked about <laughs> just recently. And uh, the boat school hopefully being sold, uh, potentially being sold, uh, hopefully, I guess, uh, you know, to this guy Marlo, Marlo mm -hmm. Yachts. Marlo Yachts. Who's yeah. a main summer guy already in the boat business and, and uh, big power boats in a major way in Taiwan and other places overseas. So wants to come to Eastport, Maine. And... Uh, you know, it, it sounds kind of good to, uh, especially the people in Eastport. So, where are we now? We're coming up on uh, our, uh, we're going to talk hopefully uh, about uh, whales out in the Gulf of Maine at this time of year right now. And also, uh, you know, we hope to, uh, when we have these uh, uh, scientific-minded people on the, on the uh, radio talk about what's going on down in the Gulf of Mexico, too. Um... After uh, we get done with these people at 10.30, there's some other stuff uh, we might like to talk about, too. There is a gas company that wants to put in an LP pier, LP dock, yep. or propane gas. Propane, yes. At Mack Point in Searsport, Maine. And, uh, you know, this uh, may or may not be controversial. The nearest propane dock is in Providence, Rhode Island. It was quite a bit to the southern of here. And uh, it all comes and goes on trucks. So, anyway, um, going to be a... Uh, they're in the permitting process for that right now. Also like to talk uh, hopefully later about the Navy officer got let go mm -hmm. on the USS Enterprise for inappropriate uh, humor and, and uh, videos and failure of leadership, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah uh, basic stupidity. Yeah, basic stupidity, I would call that. Um, Amy's well, on the phone there. We got kind of um, treading water here for a second. Well, let me tell you about um, uh, a mini boat story. The people down at, uh, in Compass Project in Portland, uh, there are a group of people who are trying to uh, do different projects to get uh, youth involved in boating and boat building and getting on the water. And one of their projects, uh, they have a, um, 
I guess you'd call it a, a self-sailing mini-boat. There's a pictures of it at compassproject.org if you'd like to check it out. But it's basically a, a fiberglass hull that's about four feet long with, a, I'm going to call it a combination rudder keel because the keel ballast part is way at the very back end of the hull and the mast is way up forward like on a cat boat. Is this the exact same rig as we interviewed this fellow from, from Belfast who has been sending those out with the main maritime boat? It may be. I don't remember seeing pictures of them before. the. I think brought. the uh, people from Belfast High uh, were had one of his boats um, that, that they had uh, sent out. Is, anyway, the, is the sail sort of kite-shaped? Yeah. Yeah, okay, they're probably yeah, the same It could rig. be the same rig, but anyway, other people are doing this, including the kids at Belfast High. Uh -huh. But it's very interesting. So well, you put these things out, and where do they go? The, yeah, well, they got these five schools, including Mount Desert Island and Islesboro, um, put these boats together and painted them up the way they want to, and they were all put aboard a... Um, a fairly large ship, which took them down to the Caribbean, where they were launched in the Eastern Caribbean, expecting to drop them off in uh, the Gulf Stream and the trade winds taking them over to Europe. So it was going to be a bit of a race to see which of these five boats got to Europe first. Well, um, winds will be a big factor, so will current. Well, that's why they said Gulf Stream, you know, yeah. <laughs> we should go over there. But winds, you're right, uh, seem to have a, a more of a factor than the current because three of the four went south. Um, Left in a north-running Gulf Stream. Yeah, yep. One thing you need to understand about the Gulf Stream, it's not a very simple river. Um, somebody was talking to me the other day, well, you just, uh, you coming north uh, from the Caribbean, you get in the Gulf Stream and just go, right? And it's like, not exactly. Gulf Stream can be a pretty nasty place. It kind of unnecessarily or unnaturally warm for the surroundings and, and kind of makes its own weather and waves sometimes. Yeah. So, And people always say, well, you know, we at the Gulf Stream yet? Well, you'll know it when you're there. <laughs> it's unmistakable. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting what happened, though. The, the MDI one now is in Panama. It sailed right between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, went right down, straight down to, to uh, Panama. The Belfast boat, they retrieved it, and it had 250 pounds of barnacles and mussels on it. Holy cow. It had become its own little ecosystem. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we do have our friends on the phone from uh, Allied Whale. Thank goodness New I was getting New tired of treading water here. So let's go to them. Good, good morning, Sean and Mo. Good morning. Good morning. Good. I'm glad you're both right there. Um, let's, let's really introduce them. Dr. Sean Todd down to the... Uh, um, uh, College of the Atlantic this morning, correct? That's correct, from Allied Well, yep. Yep, and uh, Moira Brown, can you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, Moira Brown, I'm a senior scientist down at the New England Aquarium in Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm talking to you today from Lubeck, Maine. Nice. <laughs> we recommend going down east. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. You just heard us talking about Eastport, I hope. Now, you folks are uh, interested in right whales, among other things, and I run into a lady at a party the other night, and she'd been out on a whale-watching boat just the other day, and, and off in the Jordan Basin, way off in the Gulf of Maine, about 50 miles out, and you guys run into a bunch of whales out there, didn't you? Well, don't say run into. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Well, we've, uh, we've been using the uh, Friendship 5 from the Bar Harbor Whale Watch Company to go out and look for right whales out in Jordan Basin starting back in November. We went out November 18th, November 30th, and December 18th. And uh, it's a pretty interesting area because up until, uh, oh, about four or five years ago, we didn't even know where to go look for right whales this time of the year. 
and some aerial surveys that are done by uh, National Marine Fisheries Service all over the Gulf of Maine started seeing an aggregation of whales out there this time of the year. And the reason it's so interesting to us is because right now the mothers are down in Florida giving birth to their calves. And the rest of the population is pretty much unaccounted for at this time. So the males, the females that aren't giving birth, and all the juveniles, we don't really know where they are. So we started, uh, this aggregation's been pretty consistent for the last four or five years since it was first seen in, in uh, 2004, so I guess six years ago. And uh, we're going out there to photograph the whales that are there because we can identify them all individually and match them to the animals in the catalog to see uh, if indeed this could possibly be the mating ground for the right whale. That's pretty important to the birthing process, I take it. Well, it is. And, you know, the, the kind of activity we're looking for, we call it uh, surface active group or courtship behavior. And uh, we see this in, in the summertime up here in the Bay of Fundy. And we see it in Cape Cod Bay in the spring and east of Cape Cod in, in the early summer. But most of the calves are born December, January, early February. And uh, based on what we know from southern right whales, we think the gestation period is about 12 to 13 months. So the real thing must be going on this time of year. And that's why we've been going out at this crazy time of the year where it's really hard to find good weather days. Yes, it is. Um, now... Uh you, uh, um, there's, there's a lot of whales out there. I've never, I, I deliver a lot of boats. I was probably 10 times across, across the Gulf of Maine this summer, saw more humpback whales than I've ever seen. I've never seen a right whale, I don't believe. Been looking hard. How, there's not very many, of course. No, there's only about 400 to 450. And uh, I'm happy to say that uh, at least as of a week ago, we've got 14 new calves to add to the population this year so far. So that's a really good calving year so far. But in the summertime, most of the whales are up in Canadian waters, up in the Bay of Fundy, uh, lower Bay of Fundy between Graham and Ann Island and the coast of Nova Scotia, and then over in a second area called Roseway Basin, which the fishermen call Western Hole, and uh, that's located about 35 miles south of the southern tip of Nova Scotia. More so it's not too surprising that you didn't see any in the summertime. Yeah, we uh, at one point were surrounded by about uh, two dozen humpbacks just uh, this side of the tip of Cape Cod this summer, and, and uh, we oh, were, yeah. had to dodge them. You know, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I read, though, that uh, the whale count was kind of low this summer because uh, possibly high water temperature and the lowest plankton counts in like 30 years. Yeah, that's right. We, um, we've we been working up in Lubeck since 1980, and, and uh, it's not unusual for us over at least the last 10 years to see well over 100 right whales in the Bay of Fundy in the summertime, and then, geez, another 50 to 100 offshore uh, on that Roseway Basin that I mentioned south of Nova Scotia. And this year... Um, geez, I think we only accounted for about 55 right whales, and, and that's uh, one of the lowest years. I think we had to go back to 1985 to find a lower year. And uh, we don't sample plankton on a regular basis from our boat. We, photo we concentrate on the photographic identification, but some colleagues of ours from Graham and Ann did a couple of plankton surveys and found very little in the water. And really the whales, the right whales were scattered all over this summer. Um, there were some, uh, you know, there were some just around Mount Desert Rock, there were some off Cash's Ledge and, and all down that way. So usually when you get them all scattered out like that in the summertime, it means that either the plankton has gone, you know, the plankton is better somewhere else or, you know, there's just not much plankton around for, for in, in high concentrations. Or they've found it elsewhere and we just haven't found them yet. And basically yeah. they're just looking for something to eat. Now, aren't, aren't right whales, um, are they plankton eaters? 
Yeah, they eat uh, they eat a kind of plankton, zooplankton called copepods, which is smaller than a grain of rice. It's not microscopic; you can see them, but uh, it's very small, and they usually get concentrated into really dense, dense patches, anywhere from uh, oh 4,000 critters per cubic meter up to 40,000 mm. critters per cubic meter, and that's what the whales are really good at finding. And we we never find the really high concentrations until we find the whales. But, uh, no, they're plankton eaters, and so wherever the plankton aggregates, and that's usually done by ocean currents or tidal currents, uh, that's where you'll find the right whales. And we did find one small group of them this summer surface feeding over uh, just outside of Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, really just on the, the path of the old ferry from uh, Bar Harbor to Yarmouth. Oh, we'll get to consequences in just a minute. It surprises me that you don't know where these whales are. Do you, don't, don't you ever tag them? We have tried to attach... Um, transmitters that uh, communicate with satellites to give us positions of the whales to probably over 75 right whales over the years. And the problem is, is the whales are very physical with one another. If you ever saw them in one of these courtship groups, yeah. <coughs> they're very, uh, they roll around a lot. And what happens is, is the antennas that, that uh, are required to, to make that transmission, they just get wrecked you know, with the animals bumping into one another. And so we've actually given up trying to satellite tag them because we just haven't, uh, we haven't really been able to learn very much from it. They're too frisky. I like them even more. Yeah. That's good. Sean, uh, how do you and Moira relate on this project? Uh, well, uh, the uh, Allied Whale, actually Moira is, a, is, a, uh, is a, an alumni of the Allied Whale program. She used to direct it before I came on board. Uh, and so the, you know, the relationships between the various, uh, whale research institutions around the Gulf of Maine are pretty tight, and we all know each other. Um, Moira has been very kind to invite us along on these uh, on these transects going offshore this winter time because we're also involved in the problem. Um, obviously, we're trying to uh, work out you know where the whales are, why they are there, what are what are the things that drive their distribution, both spatially and temporally. Uh, I, I think it's important to remember and to sort of reemphasize something that Mo said, which was that you know. We have very variable conditions out there. Um, conditions are very variable spatially, so some places are great for plankton, some places not so great, and the whales will tend to go to those places where the plankton is, is most concentrated. And also from year to year, it's perfectly natural. Uh, you know, we now have not necessarily good plankton records, but good records of, uh, good biological records that date back centuries that demonstrate that you, the, the ocean does vary from year to year. It's, you're not going to get a constant condition all the time. You can talk to any fisherman about that, and they'll confirm that. So we're, we're, we're trying to work out what are those things that help predict is going to, what is going to be a good whale year, what is going to be a poor, poor whale year. And, of course, we're focusing on plankton similar to, to what Mo is looking at. The, um, we, we do have plankton surveys going, off, going on out here. Um, we sample uh, in conjunction with uh, the DMR. Uh, we sample out by the Gomus buoy on the eastern main shelf there, and we also sample an area which has been traditionally called by the whale watchers, a place called the Right Whale Hole, which is just uh, south and east of Mount Desert Rock. And it's a place where, if you're going to see right whales in our area, certainly if you look at the distribution maps over the years, that seems to be a clump where they always occur because it's a particular deep hole and that seems to be fairly copepod rich. So we've been sampling those two areas. And then the other, the other thing that we've been doing lately with, uh, uh, with, with our acoustics uh, census is we've been putting... Uh, listening buoys out in these uh, potential wintering grounds that Mo has been uh, looking at, uh, because uh, as Mo has said, it's it's a very difficult area to sample. You really do have to pick your weather window. Um, three of the cruises so far have been very lucky to have 
you know, reasonable conditions to do some good work. Uh, we actually got blown out last week uh, because the weather just changed on the dime as it can this time of year, and we decided that we couldn't go out. Um, so having other ways to monitor that area other than going out to visually look at them, which is still the best way to do it, but as a sort of a secondary backup, we can listen in the air instead. So we have these listening buoys out there that are mounted on the seafloor, and they're listening 24-7. And uh, I have a graduate student, Jackie Bort, who is currently working on um, assessing those recordings and, and using those as a proxy to, dis to discover how often whales visit the area, assuming that they are vocal. And what we're discovering is, is that there are the, the whales won't shut up. <laughs> it's a very, very noisy area this time of year, so it's clearly an area that they do use. So they're frisky and they like to sing. I like them more and more and more. <laughs> yeah, there are certain, uh, there are certain vocalizations. Uh, Mo, Mo was mentioning the, the surface active group or the courtship groups. There's certain vocalizations associated specifically with those activities. And what we can do here is we can set our computers, uh, and you, you, need, you need computers for this because the data that we collect from this is vast. It's terabytes of data. So we, we set these programs to look for these shapes of sound. And uh, we are finding plenty of those kinds of vocalizations. In addition to um, plenty of vocalizations from humpbacks, um, from say whales, and from fin whales. So um, there are quite a few whales out there. It's just that you know, usually no one's ever out there <laughs> who would be in their right mind that time of year uh, to look at these animals. Um, we even have humpback whales singing. Now, humpback whale song is supposed to be traditionally reserved for those animals that go down um, to the more um, the lower latitudes uh, for, for courtship. Uh, and yet we have whales up here singing. And that, now that's been documented before, but we, because we have the, our buoys turned on for such a long time, we have these extensive tracks of song uh, that we're hoping to analyze as well. Um, I'd like to remind people why the Gulf of Maine is such a unique habitat for these animals. It really is a, um, a unique body of water on Earth. And and basically it's because of the shallow places and it looks the water looks to us on the top looks all the same but of course not to the whales and uh... you know again george's bank when you come across george's bank you know you're on it and uh, the water is just different there's very shallow but it blocks in essence the gulf of maine the mouth of the gulf of maine and makes it a basin inside of there i mean that's pretty correct isn't it uh, that's right yes the, the the key to the gulf of maine's pro well there's several keys to the gulf of maine's productivity it's actually a fairly complex question, but you know, just to, in a couple of sentences, uh, essentially we have extremely cold, nutrient-rich water uh, that is being pushed to the surface, mostly by bathymetric features such as banks and shoals, such as the one you're mentioning. Uh, but also, of course, if you go to the north and the east, you have the Bay of Fundy, which I like to tell my students is basically the biggest washing machine in the world. You know, it's just turning water over constantly, so there's a lot of tidal mixing as well. So all this nutrient-rich water comes to the surface where it you know, meets light coming down from the sun. That starts the photosynthetic process. And so you get a, a, a marvelous um, base of productivity upon which all the food systems can work upon. You know, so the zooplankton feed upon the phytoplankton and so on and so on and so on. Now, it's uh, coming up on half the hour here. We're doing boat talk this morning. We have Dr. Sean Todd from the College of the Atlantic and Maura Brown from the New England Aquarium on the phone. We're talking about uh, winter whales out in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, i got a couple of uh, questions. Do you, do you have to go at half past, Sean? Uh, no, I, I could probably stay for another 15, 20 minutes. That would be fine. We'd like to talk about the Gulf of Mexico, too, if that's possible. But here, here um, uh, let's start right away. You guys missed a boat trip the other day. You're going to go out again as soon as you got some weather? 
Yeah, we're just looking for the next good weather day. We were actually all on the boat and over in Southwest Harbor and and oh, no. uh, looking at the weather, and it had promised uh, winds less than ten knots and one to three foot seas, and the buoys were giving us uh, waves of four to seven feet and uh, winds over fifteen knots. And and uh, although it's you know you could be fine to sail out in those conditions if you had a mind to this time of year, but uh, to do the whale work, we really need calm seas. Uh, winds of less than fifteen knots are ideal, and you know, sea states down around two to four foot waves. So uh, at the last minute with uh, all of our team, research team that had come up from the New England Aquarium in Boston and also a group of about another 15 volunteers from Allied Whale and, and other local research groups and some bird observers as well, uh, we were all sitting there ready to go and we had to, uh, <clears throat> we had to cancel the trip at the last minute. So we're looking for the next good weather day, hopefully after the snowstorm comes through. Tomorrow maybe we'll get something on the weekend, who knows. Do you need another hand on deck? I'm good offshore. I got good eyes, and I never get. You know what I'm saying? That's 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 good. That's what we need. I'm available at the drop of a hat tomorrow. All right, and that's I'm good not to know. making a joke. <laughs> well, I'd love to go. Well, it's um, actually you know it's it's incredible out there this time of year to actually see the whales out there this time of year at a time we're not used to and look at their behavior and you know they're just the whales are just doing fine out there it's just the humans that uh, it's not really quite our environment this time of the year but the whales are doing fine i'm always like I say always happy out there we might talk more about this but let's talk about the consequences of these whales being out here you mentioned that you found some that would uh, be in between portland and yarmouth on a ferry route for instance yeah that was over on the canadian side of the Hague line and there and, is no uh, ferry right now so it ain't going to yeah. get run down by the whale uh the whale's not going to get run down but ship traffic and fishing is a concern to the presence of those whales correct correct and and there's actually a lot of measures in place in fact right whales are enjoying more protection from human activities now than they ever have so for example in uh in canadian waters up in the bay of fundy we move the, the vessel lanes a little bit to the east about four nautical miles closer to nova scotia a number of years ago in 2003 and that's given them a, a 90% reduction in risk of being struck up there because previously the big ships going up to St. John in New Brunswick were, were running right through where the whales were in the summertime. So that's proved to be very good. And over on Rosaway Basin, we've got an area to be avoided that's been designated and implemented by Canada. And that was all done, both of those were done through the International Maritime Organization. Now in the States, um, there are seasonal um, speed restrictions all up and down the coast from Florida to Boston. So when the whales are supposed to be in those areas. The vessels are required to go slow down to within 10 knots to 10 knots within 20 miles of shore. And then, for example, when we've been out seeing the whales on places like Jordan Basin, the National Marine Fishery uh, Service designates uh, what they call a dynamic management area, and they request uh, voluntary speed restrictions from the vessels if they're going to go through those areas. And, and the vessels are made aware of those areas through notice to mariners and, and other means. So uh, really the only... Uh, active change that happens is that uh, with the whales we've been seeing out there, if a vessel, for example, is traveling from St. John, New Brunswick, let's say, down to Boston, and it's going to transit through that middle area in the Gulf of Maine, then they would be asked to either avoid the area <coughs> or, if they can't avoid it, to, to proceed through at uh, 10 knots or less. Um, there's also the fishermen who have been, let's face it, a little cranky about this. How's the commercial ship traffic been? Uh, the, the fishermen out there, um, well, the fishermen have been required to sink their ground lines uh, if they're a pot fisherman, uh, all the way from Florida to the Canadian border. And that's all in place right now. That's uh, both near shore and offshore. <coughs> Excuse me. And also the gill netters have been required to modify their gear. There's some weak links on board. And so, yet again, you know, this was put in place in April 2009. Uh, it's a little bit too soon to tell if it's working. I wish we could tell right away if it was working. 
but uh, the fishermen have really been terrific in, in uh, stepping up and, and embracing these changes. I know it's been a, a real trial for them. The typical thing you hear from a fisherman, I've been out there my whole life, I've never seen one of them whales. Why, you know, they're not going to run into my rope. Um, but, as I say, uh, you didn't even know they were out there and you were looking for them. Well, that's true, and you know, the fishermen are very busy when they're aboard their boats. I finally got out lobster fishing uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was uh, sort of a second stern man on board, and uh, I think I had, I didn't get a chance to get my head out of the bait box or, or, or the band box uh, almost the whole day we were out. I was so busy banding claws and, and uh, stuffing bait bags, and so I can appreciate that they don't get, they don't see many of these whales, because they really are busy doing doing their work out there, and I know that's a hard a hard thing, because... Uh, if they did see them, they would, they would, you know, it would, it would help them understand what we're trying to do. But uh, think, they really have been terrific. I think it also depends how far off the, the fishermen are going as well. I, you know, it, 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 they, they would need to be in areas where there are, that are conducive, uh, either for uh, good cocoa water mm -hmm. aggregation, so they would stay and feed, or areas that the whales would be moving through. So, uh, you know, your, your average inshore fisherman is probably less likely, but not absolutely unlikely see a right whale um, you know the the most the, the most famous incident I can quote is is that we actually had a right whale sighting um, just offshore from the college between the college and Bar Island Wow so, you know approximately I don't know 200 yards from shore that's what uh, we call up and inside up and yeah. inside today <laughs> you know not outside in the real ocean as we say you know that's... no that was inside that was definitely inside the bay now that's probably not normal right whale behavior no you know, so I'm not I'm not gonna say that they do that all the time but we do have records of right whales coming closer in shores in some of the some of the tagging operations that have been a little bit more successful again I'd emphasize that tagging is very tricky with these animals but the ones that we have had stick you know we do have um, accounts that come up of whales coming closer inshore, but if you if you put all these plots on a, on a chart and you try to figure out where they usually are, um, they're usually much further offshore. C certainly further offshore than say your standard humpback or, or finback or minke whale. Uh, at least for the summer months, the, the the winter the data for the winter months are completely lacking, and and you know that's that's what we're trying to improve now. And they don't. They don't, uh, again, they, they're looking for uh, a proper niche in the ecosystem there. They don't wander, well, they, they don't, uh, their lives are not random, but they can wander exactly. around in between anywhere they like. Exactly. They're, you, they're, know? you know, they're, in the summertime, they're looking for food. And if there isn't food there, they're not going to hang around and just visit. They're going to they're gonna try and find food wherever they can find it. And, you know, that causes these dispersions and, and, and changes in, in uh in migration that, that you know that happen on a yearly basis as as mo mentioned you know this year was not a great year for the bay of fundy if you're up there as a whale researcher looking for right whales but we actually had a couple down here and that's unusual for us too it was a, it was a wonderful sight for us to see um but we don't usually get them in this area too cool and again we're talking to dr sean todd uh, and moira brown this morning about winter whales and stuff have we left anything out uh, i'd like to talk to you about the gulf of mexico for a couple minutes too if we could we covered the whale thing, do you think? Anything uh, you guys like to... Well, I would just like to mention and, and say thank you. This, is, this has been a terrific uh, opportunity this fall to do these surveys, and, and uh, you know, we can't do any of this without our funding. And uh, the funding comes from the Canadian Wildlife Federation and TD Financial Group, and you're all familiar with TD Bank down here, and, uh, and also from the Marine Mammal Commission. But uh, also Ocean Properties has been terrifically generous. Uh, they're the ones that uh, own the Bar Harbor Whale Watch uh, 
boat, the Friendship 5 that we're using, and they've discounted the rate for us a little bit to help us get out there. And for those of us coming up from Boston, they've also provided us some free hotel rooms uh, over at the Harborside, which is closed this time of year, but it's still heated, and so they've been letting us stay in there overnight uh, the night before the trips because, you know, leaving at 4.30 in the morning, we definitely want to have a good night's sleep ahead of time. So we've had a, a terrific uh, in-kind donation uh, from that company as well locally, and it's, uh, it's made it possible. We couldn't have done it without them. Nice. Do you guys, uh, again, have any... Uh um, can we talk about what's uh, going on in the Gulf of Mexico as well here this morning with you folks? Well, it's not exactly our back door, but uh, it's not something you hear about on the news anymore. It's sort of fallen quiet uh, after all of the, the t terrible oil spills this summer. But there is concern, of course, for right whales and for, for anything that lives in the ocean, really, because uh, some of the modelers projected that uh, it was possible for that oil to swing around and latch on to the the Gulf Stream and maybe come up this way, and of course the, the calves are just being born right now, really between Cape Canaveral, Florida, and up to Brunswick, Georgia, and I don't think it was projected to go in that area, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a concern. What blows me away is that uh, we had 172 million gallons, more or less, you know, and uh, yeah. the largest uh, ec ecological disaster in, in history, and that seems to have been, oh, never mind, uh, you know, it kind of has just disappeared, and some researchers from the University of Southern Maine went down there in their 93-foot uh, laboratory sailboat and found no outward negative effects on hundreds of whales, dolphins, and birds, and whales, while traversing the Gulf of Mexico for 59 days this summer. Uh, quote, there were no oil birds, there were no whales having a hard time swimming, the dolphins all seemed very happy, uh, John Weiss Sr. said, and... Uh, the only uh, sign of any oil they found was they were in port in Grand Isle, Louisiana, caught a mullet off the pier, and it had oil in its belly. Now, what's going on? Well, I think you know, the, the science of how oil spills affect the ecosystem is still fairly young. You know, the, the Exxon Valdez, I think, was probably the first time that... It, well, it wasn't obviously the first big oil spill, but it was the first time that our technology was advanced enough and the, the spill was significant enough for us to actually do some really effective studies on, on how oil propagates through a system. Uh, and I think with the, in the case of the Exxon Valdez, and Mo might be able to help me with this, um, you know, the problem with it is the oil goes to ground pretty quickly. You know, once the, once the, uh, the, the really the, the low molecular stuff evaporates off, which is a problem in itself. You know, the resultant is a tar that goes into the sediment. And then, and then of course, it can be, be re-released back into the system as that sediment gets turned over. So, you know, the effects can be quite chronic. And, you know, I think that, that the task before us is probably to look for these signals over the long term and see how those pulse out. And if we get any events that disturb those sediment, then there's the potential to release that pollutant back into the system. And that's not to say course that the effect on the benthos immediately could be quite disastrous so, you know any any fishery depends upon uh, that there's a benthic fishery um, could, could be significantly affected you know uh, as most said it's a, it's a little outside of our back door what, but what we have been doing here at the college uh, we have a, a marine mammal stranding response group here and uh, we are part of a network that goes all the way around the United States and generally, when, when big events like this happens, there's, there's a call to arms, and, and we try to help out other regions. And so what we have done at this end is we have um, several members of our team uh, got trained up 
under the HAZMAT protocols, which are the protocols you need to have in order to be, in order to be able to work in these areas where there's a spill. And uh, so they're, they're fully trained, and we, and we were put on standby to go down and help. Um, several individuals from our region, especially some actually from uh, you know, most New England Aquarium, uh, got asked to go down. Uh, we, it turns out we weren't needed, but of course we, we're on standby. And that training in the meantime is not a bad idea because, you know, we do have, um, you know, so, some fairly large movements of oil in the Gulf of Maine, and we need to be ready for that. So, uh, you know, being on a, being on a, on a, on a, on a case of standby is, is actually a pretty good idea. Um, the uh, best, best description I heard of this oil spill was here on Boat Talk. We interviewed uh, Captain Sonny Perkins, former uh, oil supply uh, tug man for the uh, oil companies down there and and he says you take uh, crude oil is different everywhere you go it's uh you know and the the stuff in the gulf of mexico if you drop a mason jar full into a bucket of seawater it will uh, flash off about 15 20 percent of it will rise up to the top and make a sheen the rest forms a big ball and drops to the bottom and then lets off little stuff like a lava lamp you know but basically it drops to the bottom and it's sitting on the bottom there and so I guess the question is, so what? It's on the bottom. Good, right? Nothing, not, nothing happening down there. Nothing, you know, any life, anything important happening down there, I'm asking you folks? Well, well I think uh, be... certainly uh, some of the, uh, the species that whales feed upon make their living down on the bottom. And certainly uh, some of the species that we like to eat make their living down on the bottom. So I think there's a great concern. There was a lot of dispersants used in this oil spill, which also helped take it down to the bottom. So the oil is there. It's just uh, it's it's out of sight and probably out of mind of a lot of people. But uh, I think uh, Sean is right on in saying that uh, the long-term chronic effects we don't have a clue right now. Other people are very upset that uh, we've uh, closed down drilling and the new drilling and exploration in the Gulf of Mexico for seven years, in the midst of a uh, you know ongoing energy crisis and all those rigs have gone somewhere else. Um, you know, uh, the oil companies, uh, BP, Transocean, and Halliburton are all apparently about to be charged with negligence and cutting corners to save money. Um, you know, it just, uh, it, just, it just bamboozles me what's wrong with this picture. Like, say, uh, according to people like, let's call out Rush Limbaugh, it never, never was a problem, you know. But like you say, long term, and the mud is not just sitting on the bottom. It's not, it's not uh, nothing happening down there. No, if you look at um, if you look at the life cycles of many of the oceanic oceanic organisms, as Mo said, that you know we eventually depend upon whether it be fish that we you know, we, we fish out of the ocean or, or various invertebrates. You know, most of them have a bottom dwelling phase. You know, that's where they settle. That's where they met, finally metamorphose into their final adult form. Um, so you know, the, the benthos is an incredibly important place. You know, ask any Maine lobsterman. <laughs> you know, the, it's it's really really important. And so. Uh, I mean, good, so they're being charged, but that's appropriate, and uh, I, I really hope that some of that money will be used not just for cleanup, but hopefully for research, so that we can not just forget about this and not just put in, you know, monitor the situation, but think about ways that we can improve this and, and ways that we can be more ready the next time it happens, because uh, unfortunately these things do happen, you know, and it's just kind of, I think anyone on the water knows that you, know, you involve salt water in something, stuff happens, right? And uh, you've just got to be ready for it. It's a uh, well-known, difficult environment to work in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Once again, we're doing boat talk this morning. We've been talking with Dr. Sean Todd, uh, College of the Atlantic, Allied Whale, Mm -hmm. 
and Moyer Brown from the New England uh, Aquarium, who's down to Lubeck Lobstering right now. Uh, Moira, I'm willing to work my passage on the friendship, too. Uh, there'll be no bait bags, I understand, but, you know. Um, <laughs> no, just uh, cameras and binoculars. You're, you're safe. You can wear your good boat clothes. Yeah, I love the picture of your head down, uh, working that whole time you were out with those boys. Uh, I guess you know how to go for a boat ride with them. Yeah, it was, a, it was actually a really great experience. And, and, you know, I've sat in an awful lot of meetings trying to deliberate what's to best be done about uh, trying to reduce the risk of, of uh, fishing gear entanglement with uh, large whales, right whales and humpbacks, and uh, boy, when you actually see the line coming on board from, uh, from, the, from the warp line and, and, and the ground lines, you really start to understand that uh, the quality of the rope is a very important consideration in, in, in making these modifications because uh, it's, it's, it's awful busy. There's a lot of action going on, and it doesn't take much for something to go wrong if the line's not quite cooperating the way you expect it to. And so there's, there's definitely going to be a learning curve, I think, with, with some of these new ropes that have been regulated for uh, the fishermen to get used to how to use them and, and operate safely around them. I think there's something beyond that as well, Mo. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, it's also essential that more researchers get out on fishing boats and understand, you know, how a fisherman operates on the water. Uh, I was I was uh, privileged enough to to work on a on a uh, on a uh, cod uh, fishing boat up in Newfoundland uh, before the moratorium up there uh, back in the 90s, and it was an eye-opening experience for me. And, uh, you know, I try to put as many of my students through that experience as well, like, you know, trying to get them on fishing boats so they can understand where the fisherman is coming from. You know, their, their frustrations are real, uh, and th there has to be a way to work towards a solution. And part of, that, part of that working towards that solution is understanding exactly what is the context that the fishermen are coming from you know, on this, in this particular regard. They're, they're a very hardworking set of people, and they deserve to be heard. I'd like to... Uh make an observational zoom out on that right now uh you know the discussion that's going on in america since the shooting on the weekend now i think uh is kind of you know it shows how hard it is for us to talk to each other uh, i don't care who's right or wrong about anything it's just almost impossible for us to talk to each other right now and a big part of the the problem is like you say the conversation uh conversational impossibilities uh, between the scientists and the and the fishermen sometimes and and I applaud you guys, uh, like say, making allies, and and uh, you know you got to you got to at some point adopt the other person's point of view at least in your head for a couple minutes, and and same for them as you guys, you know. And um, without any communication, we can all work on the same problem, and nothing good's ever going to happen, is it? Well, well, that's right. I mean, we we you know we both we both speak the same language technically, but we use it in different ways, uh, and. Uh, I think, obviously, uh, because I'm a scientist, I think that the, you know, the fisheries benefit from science. Uh, you know, we, we can help advise what the best actions are. But I think there's a, it's a two-way bridge. You know, scientists can learn from fishermen. Uh, fishermen are on the water really way more often than we are, and they have far more insight into the way the ocean works. And it's, you know, it's highly appropriate that we learn for ways to open up the communication street in both directions. Not to mention their vested interest in that public garden there, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's the key to stewardship. Is the key to stewardship is investment. Well, and again, they wouldn't be out there if uh, they weren't making a living at it. And, and again, uh, there's nothing you threaten so much as a man's ability to make a living. So anyway, well, awful that's, good talking uh, to you folks this morning. Yeah, the other thing we've been doing with these cruises, uh, these research cruises out onto Jordan Basin, is uh, we've had uh, we've invited a couple of fishermen to come along. We had Mike Dassett from Down East Fishermen's Association, and we had Jason Joyce and 
cousin Josh uh, Joyce from Swans Island that were uh, set to go out on the last trip. We did get blown out, but they're uh, they're on the list to go out on the next one. So uh, I think it's really important for them to see how we collect the data that uh, is, is being used to uh, to try and figure out this problem. Excellent. Well, like I say, very good talking to you folks this morning. Dr. Sean Todd, uh, Allied Whale, College of the Atlantic, and Moira Brown from the New England Aquarium down to Lubeck this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank All you. right. And uh, we hope to, of course, uh, keep the information coming in the future, you know, boat talk. We'll talk about anybody, and, and uh, there's so much interesting stuff going out there. Um, again, you'd think when they say a storm just blown out to sea right now, you think, oh, good, that's not going to bother anybody. There's boats, there's people working, there's whales, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on out there. You'd be surprised. Well, the phone lines are open now if anybody would like to call in and be on Boat Talk. The number to call is one 625 9378 Phone's ringing already. Can't wait to see who's there. And again, we got, uh, you know, everything to talk about anyway. Good morning. Here we go. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, guys. Thanks. Great show. Thank um, you. It's a whale of a show. You mean. It's a whale of a show. That's right. A great tale to hear, indeed. <laughs> um, but I won't blow your cover by uh, by uh, saying too much along those lines. That's all I right. got a question for you guys. You, uh, you boaties, are, uh, you like to look at the ocean, and you notice what it does. The last few months, I've been noticing extra large high tides in here in Frenchman Bay. And I was wondering if this is a normal cycle or whether this is uh, the oceans rising or whether anybody else has noticed it besides me and a couple of my friends. Well, I was wondering this. <coughs> excuse me. I was wondering the same thing too because I've noticed that also. Some extreme high tides. I haven't noticed nothing. <coughs> I'm I'm numb as a hake. Well, we got also everybody knows that the polar caps are melting. Where's that water going? Right. Yeah. And uh, I haven't noticed correspondingly lower low tides, so it doesn't. I don't think it's the moon, and that's why I was considering uh, the uh, um, it being the uh, the the, uh, the ocean rising. And maybe some of the listeners out there have have a, a clue about this. I would worry if there's not a corresponding low to a corresponding high, because that's how it works, you know? Well, if it's the ocean rising, you wouldn't necessarily have yeah, a corresponding low. Yeah, I see what you mean. Low tide would be further in, too. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, I just put that out there to the uh, the genius of the WERU audience, and uh, maybe somebody's got an answer. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Yeah, and again, uh, we've got about ten more minutes of boat talk here. And we do have another phone call. Too. All right, then. Good thing. <laughs> Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. This is Captain Yo. Oh, Captain Yo. Just to answer, Gray, I have noticed some pretty serious drain tides when you can walk way out and find urchins and stuff. Quite often they occur at night, and so it's hard. But that's not why I called in. I don't know who receives marine news, but there's an article in the most recent one posted January 3rd about a self-sufficient carbon life, zero carbon life support vessel. It's a 140-foot solar hybrid super yacht with two hydroponic farms and fishing facilities to harvest the sea. Huh. Per I'm reading this off the page. The foremost source of energy is solar cells covering the entire vessel and illuminating the farms. The second source is 
wind, which powers an automated sky sail that drives the Ocean Empire 18-plus knots while charging her batteries. And here's the really interesting thing. The third source is energy captured from waves through, quote, motion-dampening regeneration, a form of adjustable-tuned mass damper, which they put in skyscrapers nowadays to reduce swaying. In its application, 16 tons of batteries are the mass, while linear generators produce 50 kilowatts of electricity as they dampen the motion of the vessel. That sounds kind of, and you said that's called the Ocean Empire of the vessel? Ocean Empire LSV is a state-of-the-art super yacht catamaran. We'll look this up, and I would like to uh, have the prototype uh, prove its safety before I go way offshore. On well, it. here are some of the specs. She's 144 feet long. Her beam is 50 feet. She draws two and a half feet. Wow. Ten guests, eight crew. Her weight, I guess, displacement, that means. Kind of like an ocean biosphere. 85 tons. That's pretty light for a boy. Isn't size. it for that size? Yeah. yeah. Like say, I'd uh, like to uh, have some of that technology prove for I trust my life to it. Sounds like an ocean biosphere to me, yo. And as far as the hydroponic farm goes, they list a hundred square feet. What are they growing, mm. man? What's their best <laughs> cash crop? <laughs> Good question. Uh, powered range at eighteen knots, thirty-five hundred miles. Zero carbon sailing range at 14 knots average, unlimited. Zero carbon motoring range at mm. 10 knots, unlimited. Well, thanks for calling that out. That's why it's community radio, and we're all doing it together. Well, so, you're quite welcome, and thank you so much for running this wonderful show that we can all share. So uh, one more quick question, Yo, before you leave. Are you still making any more little boats? I have Santa Maria blocked out. Huh. And... Oh. <laughs> I'm generating some strange magic about this vessel. As soon as I started thinking about it, it started to appear. I found a little cast pewter model in the dump. I looked at a French sailing book that I have, and Santa Maria in a three-quarter view, which is most useful to me for modeling, uh, on, embossed on the cover. And then the other day at an antique store, I found an old-fashioned eight-sided cookie tin with, guess what, an illustration of Santa Maria right on the top. <laughs> so the universe is talking to me, and I'm really excited about learning how to sail this obsolete vessel hmm. in miniature form. Yeah. Thanks again for running this show, well, guys. Thank you, Leo. And it, um, just, I'm still amazed now that uh, you, of all people, are becoming a model citizen. Good one, Alan. And uh, don't be surprised if you see a uh, Santa Maria-type object drifting off somewhere off of Southwest Harbor. Look in the background for Yo coming after it in his Peapod. So he likes to go out there and sail those models, chase them around with the Peapod. We are coming up to the end of I think we still have one more phone boat call. Boat talk this morning. I'm do just saying the phone's still ringing. Yes, though. we do have yeah. one more phone call. Let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. You still there? Nope. Abandoned ship. We have another one coming in in just a second, though. We'll have to take that in just a minute. But. The uh, phone rings here on a light flasher, so it looks like lightning dust, and nope. uh, we got a little storm going here. But, no, yep, it's ringing again, but <laughs> nobody on the phone right now. Again, a uh, gas company is hoping to build a uh, LP pier in Searsport, Maine, which would take five to seven ships a year. The nearest ones nowadays come into Providence, Rhode Island. 
This would mean uh, possibly up to 50 trucks a day and jobs for between 15 and 20 people. Wow. On but Mac Point right now, if you don't realize it, is already being delivered uh, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, heavy fuel, ethanol, and coal, among other things. So what's the difference? Yes, we do have another phone well, call. You know, let's, let's go to that. It's got to come somewhere. Yeah. Good morning. You're on Boat Talk. Hey, ahoy, fellas. It's Daniel over in Rockland. Hello, Hello Daniel. I think the Sears Island thing, that's an interesting question. Um, but I wanted to say on... Uh, the tides, I know that we've been having a lot of lunar eclipses and solar eclipses, so I, things might just be lined up really well. That's not to say that I don't see other things that make me think uh, sea isn't rising. I mean, the Rockland Breakwater is a great gauge of extreme tides, and I see that out there. Um, but what was prompting me to think of calling you first was I got a hull to strip, a Carvel hull with, you know, just old bottom paint, and I tried it different ways, and I didn't know what you guys thought on that. For stripping the uh, old paint off. Yeah, yeah. Bottom paint um, or top size? Uh, no, it's it would be pulling off the bottom. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, you know, neatly. And, you know, I've hung up sheeting and kept things all contained before and various things. Just, uh, you know, a, a soy strip or citrus strip and how, if those work in the cold at all. How about going to there with an 8-inch grinder with a 24-grit pad? Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Hold your breath. I've done that. you got to sheet up, you know, with plastic and Tyvek and, boy, buzz the respiration's nice. Yeah, well, um, that, <laughs> catch it all. And that's why I pointed out. It's uh, a uh, be the hard way to really, go. Uh, misery. You know, yeah. it's the question of which form of misery, I guess, which is my question. But I didn't know if you had more experience with the chemical strippers. I've never actually done it that way. Have tried them a couple of times, and I I think I would recommend that over yeah. the uh, like say brute brute force way. The real chemical um, versus the green strippers. I don't remember. It's been so long. I never used any green. And strippers. And I would look in uh, like Wooden Moat magazine. They have ads for a couple of them, you know. And and uh, there's the one where they bragged that uh, yeah. you know you could strip the bottom of this boat in four hours. So. Yeah. But yeah. I couldn't tell you. I don't remember what I used to use. With bottom paint, it being as flaky as it is, I'd go at it really hard with a scraper first and get off as much just mechanically as possible so you have less to strip. But, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. You know. yeah. But so, the mess in any, any way, shape, or form is unpleasant. And, you know, good luck under that boat. <laughs> we do have another phone call. Can I tell Daniel one more thing I found really handy? I cut out a little backboard when I'm working under the boat. Two triangles of uh, plywood or, or wood with a, uh, a board screwed to them, you know, so... Oh, yeah, I'm even a proponent of carpet underneath and foam yeah. and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. you're comfortable. Uh, you got something to rest on, uh, like a backrest bat, you know, is what I found very, very handy under the boat. And headphones, so you Just can saying. Well, you know, and, uh, you got to keep it out of your nose, your ears, and your mouth. We have, we have one more quick call to get to, so we'll do that right here at the very end. Good morning. You have the last word on Boat Talk. Geez, that's a big responsibility. I ain't going to step in your shoes, that's for sure. But but I just wanted to, to offer up a little brief celebration of the, uh, the old-style Estes head, where I have spent quite a few very pleasant uh, hours wandering in my uh, distant past. And I'm sorry to hear it's being leveled, and it goes in my mind under the same category as uh, one of the shenanigans that uh, Massey Energy might try and pull down in in uh, West Virginia. And I'm just, uh, I'm a little concerned. Uh, bigness, you know, bigness ain't it great? It brings us lots of money, but uh, what are we really gaining? Uh, so put that right in with the with the cargo terminal there, uh, Sprague, and uh, remember that uh, 
all that's required to get the Sears Island permitted is to bring the uh, volume of spray up to the point where they can't manage it anymore, which sounds like would happen awful quick if you get an L LNG uh, port in there. So we're looking at uh, we're looking at a lot of changes if that happens. All right. Well, thank you. That's that's about it for boat talk for this week. We are right up against the wall. And need to make room for on the wing coming up next year on Community Radio WERU FM Blue Hill. I'm back tomorrow doing the Barefoot Blues Hour at uh, 9 in the morning. Alan's back uh, Thursday afternoon doing the Extra Large Soul and BoatTalk.org all the time. Second Tuesday of the month, we'll be here in February. We already got the rest of the winter all figured out. It's unusual for us. Thanks. Support for Boat Talk comes from Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net.